Should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. So electrified looks different for everyone. Yup, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. Jim? Hi, Catherine. We're recording this at about, what, 1 p.m. on Wednesday Eastern, and we don't know who the president is. Did did you stay up late last night? For me, yeah. I know you hate I to sleep. I was up past midnight. Mm-hmm. I don't hate to sleep. I, I think it's quite good for you. You just hate personally to take care of yourself, yeah. <laughs> I know. I need to. Um, but it was interesting. In Brooklyn, it, everyone voted like a week before the election, mm-hmm. and I did it on election day, and there was no one there. Mm. which was a collective experience, I think, for a lot of people. What about you? Did you stay up all night in, in Texas? I uh, I was up till like, yeah, midnight. And then, you know, we're going to see. Um, but I will say Texas is usually never um, really much talked about in presidential elections. And it was quite a bit. The people were paying attention very closely yeah. to what was going on in Texas and even down to sort of county by county levels, which was very interesting. Felt like hadn't seen that before, that level of attention being paid to specific regions in Texas. Did you notice that too? Oh, yeah. And uh, Adam Serwer wrote about Texas for us. And it seems, from what I understand, that the state will be eventually changing its political orientation to be blue at some point in the future. And it's just a question of how long. I mean, I think that's part of the assumption, but I, I do think there's been there was some interesting stuff last night um, that complicated that picture, maybe, or just gave more information, more detail on on how that's going. I will say we're not talking about the election today, but we are talking about Texas, and it, it was interesting to see it be like so in the in the conversation in a way that it it hadn't been before. Okay. But now, yeah, there was this map and they kept zooming in. The narrators of the maps kept zooming in and telling us about counties that I would otherwise not know about that granular detail. Yeah, well, specifically, there was a lot of focus on South Texas and the Rio Grande Valley, and uh, which is along the border. Yeah. And there were some interesting and I guess semi-unexpected results there. I'm not sure, at least according to the national anchors. It has been historically fairly blue, and it became a little less blue this time. But anyway, I think one of the things that I was thinking about a lot as they were zooming in to that region is that region has been really, really, really hard hit by COVID. Right. Um, I mean, there's an outbreak in El Paso now along the border to the west. Um, But further east in the summer, there was this huge crisis there. And... I realized that we just haven't talked much about uh, coronavirus in rural areas. And given that a lot of the outbreaks right now are in rural areas, mm-hmm. um, I want to know more about what the ex- what people are experiencing right now um, and what the experience has been like in these areas of coronavirus. Yeah, that would be great. Who should we talk to? Do you have a fellow Texan? Yes. So the the person I want to talk to today is Carlos Sanchez. He's the head of public affairs for Hidalgo County. 
Before that, he was a longtime journalist in Texas, and he recently wrote for The Atlantic about the experience that he and Hidalgo County have had over the course of the last several months with COVID. Um, So That was such a good piece. Yeah, yeah, we'll link to it in the show description. Um, But I think, you know, the thing I've been thinking about is how much focus there was for us and for the national media on New York in the spring. Mm -hmm. And... It was such an intense experience, but many, many other places have now had a similarly intense experience, and uh, we haven't been talking to them, you know? I think they're not getting the level of attention and maybe concern that New York did in the spring. Yeah. You have field hospitals and makeshift morgues and things that were described in New York back then happening now in various places across the country. Right. I guess there's a scale issue, or is it a numbness? Well, I think we should ask Carlos. Okay. Hi, how are you? I'm doing well, thank you. Thank you for spending a little time with us on a very strange day. (laughs) At the least. Hmm. How's it feeling in South Texas? You know, it is actually quite surprising how well Trump has done among the Hispanic vote. The benchmark uh, had been George W. Bush, and he got 37% of the Hispanic vote. Trump is showing like he's exceeded 40% in South Texas, which I find extraordinary. Um, This remains a solidly Democratic stronghold, but there appears to be inroads. Uh, Hispanics in South Texas are much more conservative than people view uh, most Democrats. And I think this is showing its face uh, for the first time at at the national level. I just thought because of all the rhetoric with regard to the wall, uh, all that has been done with regard to immigration, uh, particularly the MPP, which uh, is is something we see uh, almost routinely um, because there's a major camp in, in Matamoros across from Brownsville. I just figured that Biden would resonate uh, much more strongly than he has, um, Mm -hmm. at least in the early numbers that we're seeing. Right. We were just talking about how I was noting that on the national news networks last night, there was a lot of zooming into South Texas and a lot of looking at South Texas. And I think uh, that felt very unusual for there to be that much sort of information, detailed information about the region on a night like last night. Yes. But I also realized... It would be fair to say that most people in this country don't know a lot about South Texas. I would say that's very fair. I think there's (laughs) a lot of misperceptions. Uh, You know, one of the reasons that I got out of journalism and into the position that I'm currently in was the we build a wall people. There is a private wall that is uh, going up. And the rhetoric that was being used to raise money to fund the construction of this wall was so inflammatory um, that I felt compelled to reach out to the county judge and and say, you all need to respond as a region. Uh, The problem was I felt like I was uh, crossing ethical boundaries as a journalist. Mm -hmm, Uh, mm -hmm. So instead, when I talked to him, I said, do you have any job opening?" Mm-hmm. Um, and and my objective is to try to respond to the misperceptions and, and the rhetoric that kind of inflames tensions nationwide, but uh, 
at the expense of, of South Texas. Right. Well, why don't you tell us about South Texas? Why don't you give an orientation to the region, to, to the listeners here? South Texas is a kind of long misunderstood region. It uh, has always been kind of an agricultural hub, particularly with citrus. It is an area in which white landowners have uh, farmed this region with the use of Hispanic laborers for decades, if not centuries. It is an area that because of its poverty um, has been long overlooked politically and the manifestations of that have come out with this pandemic. Key among them is the lack of medical resources that exist, the high poverty rate, and the comorbidities that go hand in hand with, with COVID-19. Chief among those are high incidence of diabetes and high incidence of uh, obesity. It's just a component of this community. One of the things that I found fascinating about Hidalgo County when I first moved here was that when you walk into a public restroom, for example, there is that container for uh, medical waste because so many people uh, have to inject themselves because the rate of diabetes is so high here. And so COVID-19 has brought out just how dramatic one, the rate of obesity is, uh, and two, the rate of diabetes is in, in, in South Texas. Um, and it also has demonstrated how fatal those uh, comorbidities can be. You wrote mm-hmm. about that very lucidly in your story for The Atlantic, how that sort of laid the ground for a bad wave of COVID-19 in the area. Could you say a little bit about the experience of coronavirus has been recently? Well, it's been devastating. Um, in July, the month that I myself was uh, found to, to be positive and ultimately hospitalized was the month that uh, South Texas became a hotspot for COVID-19. Um, our first case was March 21st. And between March 21st and the end of June, 46 people had died of COVID-19 in in Hidalgo County. In July alone, the number of deaths shot up to 598 people. So what we discovered is just how rapidly this uh, disease can spread and how quickly it can kill. You mentioned your own illness. Are you doing better now? Are you still having symptoms? Or are you fully recovered? Well, I am doing better now. Uh, since I left the hospital on July 21st, I've spoken with a lot of people who have also uh, fallen ill to COVID. All of them describe different types of symptoms, but the common denominator is exhaustion. And that is something that prevails uh, even after you show no other symptoms. To this day, uh, I still show signs of fatigue and exhaustion, fibrosis or scarring in my lungs. And, and that's causing me to have difficulty breathing. Yeah. Um, so that's the physical symptoms. There's also mental symptoms. Um, I am easily depressed. Uh, sometimes for you know no reason, um, I can begin 
crying if I'm alone. That was something that happened uh, with regularity when I left the hospital. I uh, left and went home to continue to isolate. So I was in my room, had a nice TV, and uh, I I never turned it on. I kind of sat in my room in the darkness, uh, spent a lot of time just crying and trying to process uh, the 10 days that I had been in the hospital and, and what I had experienced. Uh, and I continue to process that to this day. Sorry to hear that. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, I mean, it just seems terrifying. And the experience you're describing, I think, for people who aren't familiar with the region, I think when you say 500 deaths, I think people may not know what that means in that region. That means hospitals were quite overwhelmed. Can you describe the feeling of that time? I mean, one of the attributes of South Texas is that it's a community where everybody knows everybody else. Um, At its height in July, Houston was logging two deaths per 100,000 people. Uh, Texas overall, three deaths per 100,000 people. Hidalgo County was logging 17 deaths per 100,000 people. And these were frequently people that you knew. I mean, it, it, it was family. It was extended family. And so to answer your question, you know, what it was like, um, it was scary. The complexion of the county just changed seemingly overnight. I walked into the hospital and my community was, was one way. When I left the hospital, uh, it had been transformed. And the transformation was, was a pall of fear. Uh, and thank goodness that has left. We've stabilized where our numbers are, are, are doing better, but there remains a concern. Um, and there's been several computer models that suggest uh, not only our region, but, but the state and, and the nation overall is about to uh, experience the type of surge that existed uh, in Hidalgo County in July as we close in on the holidays in the end of the year. Mm. Can I ask you, how long have you been in Hidalgo County? Um, I was the executive editor of the newspaper here in Hidalgo County for five years. And then I've been here another two years. However, um, I grew up in El Paso, which is another border community and, and has similar types of statistics, uh, history, and El Paso itself is going through a crisis these right, days. Right, right. Pa- uh, I feel like we've heard m- in some ways more about El Paso than uh, the Rio Grande Valley, just because of its size, I guess. Are they going through a July-like experience right now? Very much so. Their hospital system is overwhelmed uh, the way it uh, was here in Hidalgo County on a daily basis. The number of people testing positive and the number of people who are dying are are setting records uh, in El Paso. It it is uh, something that we saw in Hidalgo County in July, and it's just as scary uh, for them. I've got relatives still in El Paso, and, and the fear that they are conveying is a fear that I experienced in July. Yeah, I mean, what what does it mean that that different regions continue to experience these same patterns? It means that I don't think we're learning our lessons. I think that uh, first and foremost, the ability to have uh, local control to respond to this pandemic is is essential. 
Governor Abbott took away a lot of that local authority that uh, my boss had enacted, and he did it on a statewide level. And that's when the numbers began to shoot up. So the notion, particularly for a state the size of Texas, uh, to have kind of a one-size-fits-all solution emanating from the governor's office is is a notion that I don't think is working. Right. I mean, for context, maybe we should mention, how long does it take you to drive from Hidalgo County to El Paso? <laughs> it is an 11-hour drive. Okay. So yes. they're both on the border, but it's yes. uh, it's a long border. It is a very long border, and uh, people don't realize that it is closer from El Paso, for example, to the border of California than it is from El Paso to Dallas. Mm -hmm. Um, Texas is just a huge state. And again, that's one size uh, fits all solution for something like this pandemic is is, uh, just not working. Right. Right, right. That's interesting. That's interesting, especially in the context of our national election going on right now. We've talked a lot about how, you know, we need national coherent policy, which of course we do. But um, what you're saying is the patterns are so localized and so regional and, you know, the way people live in different places is so different that the solutions really need to be different based on the based on the region. And also very ironic, as a reporter, I had the opportunity of covering then-Governor George W. Bush, who made a mantra for the Republican Party, at least in Texas, of local control and the advisability of local control. And that is the very issue that is now plaguing us, because local control has been taken away by the Republican governor now in power. Hmm. I want to ask you one question about your piece. The the headline you wrote is, uh, or I don't know if you wrote it, but <laughs> the headline is <laughs> COVID, COVID-19 is killing my people and no one seems to care. I, I did wonder, do you think, I guess, do you think no one cares? It, it, it's interesting. The, the support that I have seen on social media for my story has been overwhelming. I've seen very few trolls, if at all, The criticism that uh, has emanated with regard to the story has to do with with that headline. Uh, And people from all over the country uh, are taking issue with it and and saying, we care. But I think the operative word there is seems to care. Mm -hmm. Um, And we do sometimes feel very alone and vulnerable uh, in how the nation is reacting to us politically and in terms of of the support. Um, It's something that I think we have endured uh, for four years now um, because of the immigration policies that have been acted and how it's impacted our communities here on the border. So that sense of of nobody seeming to care is, uh, I think, something that preceded COVID but it was certainly exacerbated by COVID. Mm-hmm. So it, it does feel occasionally that, that no one seems to care. Um, but I can tell you, I met some wonderful people. They were nurses uh, who had no idea about what uh, Hidalgo County was like. They were just here from the Southeast part of the United States to help. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's something uh, at the moment I really appreciated. Yeah, that's been one of the bright spots of this whole mess is these stories of people kind of 
going to lengths to help other people out. So I hope. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a yeah. terrific bright spot. Um, and again, that notion is something that preceded COVID. Um, you would be amazed at the links that people go to try to help uh, the immigrants who are claiming asylum or trying to claim asylum uh, along our borders. And again, it feeds into that notion that nobody else seems to care, mm-hmm. um, but we will. We'll take care of, uh, of these people. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, there has basically been this encampment right across the border uh, from Brownsville. I mean, literally walking distance across the border. And people on our side of the border, Americans, on a daily basis for at least a year now, have been gathering together to cook meals and to take those meals over in wagons to help feed these people Mm. because Mm -hmm. they recognize these people are are in dire straits. Um, So that's where that sentiment of nobody seeming to care really kind of resonates with us in South Texas. I'm wondering as we brace for, as you mentioned, this surge in the winter in a lot of places, it's, happening in rural areas, it's happening in places that hadn't been or possibly even still haven't been hard hit yet by the virus. And I think there's some complacency and disbelief and tendency to say, you know, it, it just hasn't been bad here. Or people, I don't know people who've who've been sick yet. Having been through that experience of a place that, that got hit a little bit later, do you have any message or lessons for, for people in those areas who are still trying to keep the vigilance high? Yeah, it's a real challenge. Um, From a public policy perspective, it's an enormous challenge. Uh, We just, for example, last weekend celebrated Halloween. Um, My boss, the county judge, uh, ordered restrictions in anticipation of Halloween that uh, forbade uh, door-to-door trick-or-treating. As we emerged from the weekend, there were many videos on social media of restaurants and other entities, other businesses uh, holding Halloween parties that were packed and where people weren't wearing masks. So there is this sense that we survived July, uh, the worst is over, um, we can take it easy now. And I think it's a sense that overtook the country as a whole for a while. And it's certainly a sense that overtook Europe as a whole. And we're seeing the repercussions in Europe now. And I fear we're going to see the repercussions in our country and in my region in a few weeks from now. Well, we'll be thinking about you in, in uh, the Rio Grande Valley, El Paso, 11 hours away, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and everywhere in between. Well, thank you so much uh, for your interest, Catherine and Jim. You know, you're always welcome down here. We'd love to give you a tour of the place. Oh my gosh, I'm taking you up on that. You're always welcome. (laughs) Okay, thank you. Thank you, Carlos. All right, y'all take care of yourself. All right, take care. You know, that's where my favorite book is set, roughly. Yeah? What's your favorite book? Lonesome Dove by Larry McMurtry. This is fascinating. I feel like there's a Lonesome Dove type, and it totally makes sense that you're one of them. Ooh, What's the type? And I'm going to leave it at that. Oh, no. No, I mean, I... I, I've, I uh, Just cool guys who are pretty worldly and I think it's like uh, men who are 
really into like fitness, yeah. but also have a soul. <laughs> oh, well, that's kind of you. Thank yeah. You. I wasn't sure where you stood on the <laughs> presence or absence of my soul. <laughs> well, uh, I, I would say um, evidence points to you having oh, one my so far. I'm genuinely smiling for the first time in a while. Thank you. Oh my God. I'm glad to provide that. Um, okay, well, I guess we'll go back to staring at uh, the news and await further developments. Um, this show was produced today by Kevin Townsend. You can write us at social distance at theatlantic.com. You can also subscribe to The Atlantic at theatlantic.com slash support us. That'll get you access to Carlos's piece and all the other journalism we have on the election right now. If I haven't said it enough already, do read Carlos's story. It's really, really well done and, and moving and a really clear depiction of what it's like to have this illness. Yeah. Okay. Um, thank Should you. Should we close with one of my more country songs? Why would that be, Jim? Uh, just because it's Texas. I will. Listen, come here. Let's go visit Carlos, and you're going to see that all of your ideas are wrong. Oh, what kind of music do they listen to in Texas? You know, top 40, like everybody else. Oh. Okay. All right, fine. Bye. Bye. Texas. So, should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. Yes, we could go all electric with a Toyota BZ4X, but then there are hybrids like Grand Highlander, or we could do something in between like a RAV4 plug-in hybrid. So, Toyota is electrified diversified? Yep, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, the closer we all get to Toyota's Beyond Zero vision for the future. Exactly. How much coffee have you had this morning? Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero.